Good morning, and welcome to St. Peter's Fireside. My name is Rob Collis, and I'm on our pastoral team. And it is a joy to be with you here today. Thanks for joining us this Sunday. Uh, really quickly, how many of you were at Korean Trivia last night? That was so much fun. Uh, for those of you who, who don't know, uh, we've got an annual tradition of eating curry and playing trivia. Uh, and that was last night. And my, my favorite moment from last night, there was this one curry um, which had a warning sign, an orange warning sign, which said, caution, extremely spicy. Uh, I know who made it, and I know that his daughter-in-law was behind me or in front of me in the line, and she looked at me and said, Rob, you're preaching tomorrow. You are not allowed to eat this curry. Because <laughs> if you do, you will not be able to preach tomorrow. So I, I heeded her warning, and I did not eat the curry, um, and I'm here. Uh, I, I have a confession to make. I put up my Christmas decorations this week. And, and now, if, if you don't know me, the, if you do know me, like, if you don't know me, you're like, well, what's the big deal? That's been up since, like, November 1st at the mall. But if you know me, though, you know that that's a strange thing for me to do. And it's an even stranger thing for me to admit to publicly on a live stream to YouTube and the whole world. Because on the spectrum of Buddy the Elf to Ebenezer Scrooge, I'm, I'm like somewhere over here. And yeah, it's not something I tend to delight in and do. But, but on Tuesday, it, it was snowing. And Advent has already started, and, and my wife really appreciates decorating for Christmas. And, and now we've got a daughter, and it's going to be her first Christmas. And she loves staring at the lights. Now, to be fair, she also loves staring at her hand and going like this. <laughs> And she loves putting her foot in her mouth, too. <laughs> Normally, I don't do very much to decorate. Uh, and if it were up to me, I'd probably put the tree up on December 24th, and, and I'll be okay with that. But this week, we got out the decorations, and we prepared our house, our home, for Christmas. We're now in, in the second week of Advent. And Advent is the season of preparation. In the church calendar, it's when we prepare for the coming of, of Jesus. And whether you're familiar with Advent or not, whether you've grown up with Advent, whether you're new to Advent, we probably can figure out that Advent is about preparing for Christmas. But Advent also prepares us for more than just Christmas Day. Advent means, means coming, means arrival. And during Advent, we are awaiting the arrival of Jesus to come into the world. And Yes, we're awaiting that time, remembering that time when he came first as a baby. We're awaiting and getting ready for Christmas, absolutely. But even more, we're getting ready for when he will come again in power to judge the living and the dead. We're awaiting and getting ready for his second coming. As we just said in the creed together, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Advent is a season to prepare for when Jesus comes to earth. And nowadays, we prepare for Christmas by, by putting up decorations and by playing music, blasting it full of Christmas cheer for all to hear. But how do we prepare our hearts during Advent? How do we prepare ourselves spiritually for Jesus to come at Christmas? This morning, we're going to turn our attention to John the Baptist, and we're going to listen to John to learn how to prepare the way for the Lord. But really quickly, who is John the Baptist? Uh, we learn about John in the New Testament. Uh, he appears in all four of the gospel accounts. 
We also learn about him in the work of Josephus, who was a, a Jewish historian. Uh, and from what we read, it, it seems John may likely have been a bit of a distant relative of Jesus. And in fact, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, we're told that their mothers, Elizabeth and Mary, were relatives. And although it's not clear how they're related, they clearly knew each other. So it means that their mothers knew each other as they were both growing up as, as kids. And as, as they grew up, uh, John grew up to be a religious figure in the region of Judea. So clearly something also seems to run in their family. We're told that John lived in the wilderness, in the desert, and that people would travel from far and wide to come and see him and to listen to him. When we first see John in Matthew's gospel, we're told in verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. It's a kind of, of image of a bedraggled and wild street preacher, isn't it? And he sounds kind of intense just by his description. He's the kind of guy who, who lives out in the desert, and for a, a diet, he eats locusts and honey, which um, Richard and I have banded back and forth about our breakfasts, and I used to eat Weetabix, and now he has to eat Weetabix. And I, locusts and honey is another level than Weetabix. But the description about John's clothing actually harkens back to something in the Old Testament. And in the book of 2 Kings, we learn that the prophet Elijah is described in the exact same way. We read, Elijah had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. So John the Baptist wasn't just this religious guy in his day and age. He wasn't just some religious guru that people went out into the desert to go to to try and find themselves to walk through an existential crisis. John was understood to be a prophet, but not just any casual prophet on the street. They understood that John was a prophet in the line of all the great prophets throughout Israel's history. He was in the ranks of Elijah. And for the Jews living in the first century, it wasn't just that he was on that level of prophet. They actually looked at him, and they looked at his clothing, and they thought, oh, I think I know who you're supposed to be. Because you see, when, when we read the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the very last prophet to speak was this guy named Malachi. And at the very end of that book, in chapter 4, verses 5 to 6, Malachi said, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction." In the Jewish world, people were waiting for God to send Elijah. They were looking and waiting. They were looking for someone to come to turn their hearts towards God and to prepare the way of the Lord. And there have been 400 years between Malachi's words and John the Baptist showing up on the scene. And over those 400 years, people had shown up and they'd claimed to speak for God. And to varying effects, people had followed them and listened to them, but, but often it didn't go very well with the outcome. And in the end, it, it seemed that those people who were claiming to speak for God, it seemed like they kind of put more words in God's mouth than actually spoke as an oracle of God themselves. The, the biblical scholar William Barclay says, the emergence of John was like the sudden sounding of the voice of God. At this time, the Jews were sadly conscious that the voice of the prophets spoke no more. They said that for 400 years, there had been no prophet. 
Throughout the long centuries, the voice of prophecy had been silent. As they put it themselves, there was no voice, nor any that answered. But in John, the prophet voice spoke again. For 400 years, there had been silence. For 400 years, they'd been waiting for God to speak again. They'd been waiting for Elijah to come. And now, John had emerged. He'd come to prepare the way for the Lord. In Matthew chapter 3, we read, This is he, John, is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John is this new Elijah. He's the one who's come to prepare this way. And if it hasn't already become apparent, these first few verses we've already looked at have all these like notes back to the Old Testament. They just keep popping up and up and up. And I promise this is the last one I'm going to point out. But that phrase, prepare the way of the Lord, it refers to the road that King Solomon built during his reign as king of Israel. He had built these roads all throughout Israel so that he could travel to see his kingdom. And whenever he was preparing to go visit somewhere in his kingdom, he would send people out ahead of him along these roads, and they'll go visit the people along the way and say, hey, the king is coming. Prepare the way for the king. They'll make sure that the road was, was clear and that it was level, and that it was in good repair so that the king could come with all of his people to come and visit that place. And as I was reading about this king's highway that Solomon had built and, and that, that message that prepared the way idea from John, my mind, my mind went straight to the Coquihalla Highway. Uh, quickly, for anyone who's newer to BC, uh, the Coquihalla Highway is, is the name of the stretch of Highway 5, which goes from Hope to Kamloops. It's a major pass through the mountains connecting the low mainland to the BC interior and to the rest of Canada. Uh, and and the, the, mount, the views of the mountains along the way are just stunning and breathtaking. But it's also a really treacherous road. And many of us will remember how the atmospheric rivers from last year came and just flooded our lives. Uh, as the rains fell and the floods came, landslides washed away long stretches of the Coquihalla, as well as many of the other highways in this region, and essentially cut us off from the rest of the country. The Coquihalla was washed out. Bridges were swept away, and the road could not be passed. We couldn't travel on the highway. We were stuck. And I think the image of the washed-out Coquihalla is actually a really helpful image for us. It's helpful when we consider how we can prepare spiritually for the coming of Jesus at Christmas. Imagine with me that the Coquihalla is your connection to God. It, that it's your, your spiritual life, as it were. What we believe as Christians is that this thing called sin came into the world, and just like the rains washed away the highway, sin has washed that spiritual highway and washed it out. Our spiritual life got cut off from God because of the effects of sin upon the world and in our own lives. Sin washed out the highway to God in our lives. John the Baptist came to tell a people to prepare the way for the Lord. But their highway had been washed out. 
He came to tell them that, that the highway had been washed away, and, and not everyone liked to hear that. And in his ministry, throughout his life, he would meet people, and, and there were three kinds of people who, who heard his message, and it didn't take too well to it. And I want to just focus on those three responses for a little bit. Uh, the, the first response for, was from religious leaders of his own day. If we continue reading in Matthew 3, in verse 5, we learn people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, that's pretty intense. It's not how I have been taught to speak from the front. And if you see a guy, though, in, in clothing like that, with, who, who eats locusts and wild honey for a living and, and is out in the desert, that's probably, though, what you would expect him to say to someone, right? That's kind of the image we have of the wild preacher out in the middle of, of the wilderness or even on the street sometimes. But before we dismiss him, let's look at what he's actually saying. Let's look a little closer because people have been coming from all over the area to come and listen to him. They were coming from Jerusalem and all Judea and all around the Jordan River to come be with this guy and to sit at his feet and to listen to what he has to say. And with all those people, there were also some distinct groups that came, Pharisees and Sadducees. These were religious groups, kind of like uh, denominations in the Jewish world of the day. And they'd heard that there was this new prophet in town, or I guess out of town, and, and they're curious. So they go to see what all the fuss is about. And so they head out, and they find the spot where, where John's set up to do his ministry, where he's preaching and getting in the river and getting wet with people, and they just seem to come to watch and observe. And it's kind of like they were this surveillance team sent out on a stakeout mission to spy on John, and they're taking notes of everything he says and does, they're learning his daily routines, and they're making a list. They're weighing and assessing what it is he's saying. And as they're watching and as they're recording, very quickly John sees them. Like that moment in a, in a movie where like, you just see the big FBI van just outside the street. Like, what are you guys doing? So John sees them on this stakeout and he says, you brood of vipers, you offspring of snakes. So clearly he doesn't think very highly of them. And then in verse 8, he says something really interesting to them. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. John looks at these religious leaders of his day and, and he says to them, my message applies to you too. My message applies to you too and the highway in your life to God has been washed away as well. And this group of people who have come to listen to John, but they're struggling to click with this message. They have some extensive thoughts and ideas about how the world works and how religion is supposed to work. They spent time reading books about faith and belief. They, they know the scriptures front to back and back to front and can recite anything back to you. And they have all the theology and all the arguments and all the ideas and debates about what to believe and think about faith and life and the universe and everything. It's 42 and with all their learning about the world and all their ideas about God and spirituality, they find that they just don't agree with this. They're watching and observing him. And they're listening. They're taking their notes so that they can go talk with their friends and other people about 
this stuff that this other religious guy is saying about the world. But they're not letting his words sink in. John met with... Uh, John met a group of people who were coming to listen to him and who were outwardly looking like very religious people. But they wanted to hold the implications of what he was saying at arm's reach. And I think for those of us who, who call ourselves followers of Jesus, this can actually be a trap for us. We, we listen sometimes and we, we come and participate. But in our hearts, sometimes we're holding back. And if I can be honest, I know that this can be a temptation for me. I can struggle with the temptation to, to turn belief into just thinking and about religious ideas and things to, to think about and to do. And I, I do that to try and keep them from pissing my heart. And in those moments, I, I find myself guilty of not wanting to give much weight to the voice of God in my life. It's like I find ways of rationalizing why I don't need to let something sink in and touch my heart. And I think that stems from a fear that I sometimes have that I might get hurt if I let God touch my heart. I fear that maybe I can't trust him to be tender and merciful with me. That, that first way we can sometimes struggle with this message from John about preparing the way for the Lord is, is we hold up other things, other beliefs about how the world's supposed to work so that we don't have to wrestle with the implications of these things in our own hearts and lives. As we read more about John the Baptist uh, and the way people responded to him, there, there were two other responses that I think we see people have to him and how they, they struggle to listen to his message. All throughout his life, John's message was the same. Prepare the way for the Lord. And he called people to live as people who were prepared for the coming of God in the world. And John wasn't really afraid to call people out. He really was not afraid to call people out. And later in his life, he, he spoke up against the king, which is a bit of a dangerous thing to do. And it, it didn't go well for him. Uh, we jump to the book of Mark. In chapter 6, verse 17, we read, For King Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. It didn't go well for him. And he had bound him and put him in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, the story of Herod and his family could very easily be like a reality TV series. Meet the Herodians. Um, everyone in their family was called Herod, which makes it really confusing. Uh, you have Herod the Great, who had three sons. Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Philip. And I don't know why Philip wasn't a Herod. He just didn't get the title. And, and somewhere along the way, Archelaus got estranged from the family and was cut off. Uh, and then in the meantime, Philip married a woman named Herodias, and Antipas married a woman named Phasaelus. I think that's how you say that. Only Antipas and Herodias kind of headed off, and they liked each other. So he got divorced, and she got divorced, and then they got married to each other, and then they had a child named Salome, who later on we learned that Philip then remarried, and he married a woman named Salome. And it's a little fuzzy about exactly who that Salome was, but the jury seems to say we think it was that Salome. So meet the Herodians. <laughs> and when Herod Antipas married Herodias, John the Baptist chimed up. And he said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to. 
because Herod Antipas feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Herod is that second type of person who, who struggled to receive John's message. Herod ended up putting John in prison. And it, it seems that every so often he would go down to meet with him. He would listen to what John had to say. And John would keep telling him, Herod, your spiritual life is like a highway that's been washed away. The reality of sin in your life and in this world has washed out that highway. The Lord is coming, though, Herod. The Lord is coming, and it's time to prepare the way. It's time to live your life in light of the fact that God is king. He's the true king. As he's calling you to live according to his light and to live as though he is actually the king in your life. And Herod would hear John say this. And he was really perplexed. He was greatly puzzled. He didn't know what to make of John, and he really didn't want to do what he said. But he also liked listening to him. He didn't want to do what he said, but he loved to come and to listen to him. And Herod did something which is actually quite similar to those Pharisees and Sadducees. He came to listen, but he didn't want to do it. Instead, he would think of reasons and excuses to, to deny the full weight and authority of what John was telling him to do. The religious leaders offered up excuses about how they understood their beliefs about God and the world to work. And we don't know what Herod's excuses were. They were likely things to do with raising the complexities of family dynamics and politics. But whatever his reasons were, he used them to lock the voice of God away. And he decided to only engage with what God had to say when he felt like it, on his own time. And it doesn't really matter what his reasons were. Even though he wanted to keep hearing, in his heart, he didn't want those words to have any power. He, he wanted the final say. And in fact, later on, we see that the only words that he thought had any power in his life were his own words. The story goes on to explain how, uh, on one of Herod's birthdays, he, he threw a banquet. And his daughter, Salome, came and entertained everyone with a dance. And just to be clear, this, this wasn't like a, a cute little daughter doing a ballet recital in front of the grown-ups. Um, it, it was a provocative dance which pleased Herod and his guests. And in response, Herod promised her anything she wanted, up to half his kingdom. And she heard that, and so she was like, huh. And she went to go confer with her mother. And if you remember, we just read that Herodias had nursed a grudge against John, and she wanted him dead. So Salome came back to her father, and she looked at him and said, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And when he heard it, we read, the king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths, because of his words and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. Herod liked tickling his ear with religious curiosities and ideas. He liked listening to John tell him about God and how the kingdom of heaven had come near. But his indecision about listening and heeding John's words eventually came back to haunt him. He was content to listen to the voice crying out in the wilderness, but he wasn't prepared to heed it. He didn't want to prepare the way of the Lord in his own life. 
And there's a third response to John, which was didn't receive him well either, and that was Herodias. And from the very start, she knew that she did not want to prepare the way of the Lord. As soon as she heard John calling out in the wilderness, she, she wanted nothing to do with it. And she was angry and resentful towards John for ever trying to call her to prepare the way for the Lord. And it seems like she had things to gain by staying in, in that darkness, in that space. And she clearly recognized that preparing the way for the Lord in her own life would mean that she had to let go of the control and power that she had sought to gain. And not only was she not interested in listening to this message, but she deliberately wanted to kill John to get him to stop speaking all about it. And Herodias might, might have been the most harsh and, and extreme reaction of them all. But in many ways, she's also the most honest, isn't she? She loved the darkness more than the light, and, and she was willing to name it. Herodias wanted nothing to do with John and his message. She had no desire to prepare the way for the Lord in her life. Herod, he was curious. But in the end, he didn't want the voice of the wilderness to expose the darkness in his own heart. He didn't want the word of God to have any power in his life. And the Pharisees and Sadducees were content to come and listen, but they also wanted to keep the light at bay. In their hearts, they wanted to hold up other ideas about the world to ward off the demands of God in their own lives. And for all the subtleties and differences of their responses to John's message, at the end of the day, their response was the same, wasn't it? They didn't want to prepare the way for the Lord. They didn't want God's light to shine in their lives. They didn't want to prepare their hearts for the coming of Christ. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for God to come into the world. He came to tell them to prepare for the coming of the king, but the road had been destroyed. The king's highway, the road God would travel along to come and be with his people, it had been washed away. And there were some who didn't want to receive John's message. Who didn't want to believe that the Lord was coming. Who didn't want to believe that the road had been washed away. But there were others who heard John's words. They heard his words and they let those words sink in. His words touched their hearts and they wanted to prepare the way for the Lord. So how do we prepare the way for the Lord when the path has been washed away? Let's look at our passage again in Matthew chapter 3. In verse 1 it reads, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. John prepared the way for the Lord to come by calling people to repent. And when I asked that question earlier, how do we prepare our hearts during Advent? How do we prepare spiritually for Christmas? In some ways, this answer feels kind of weird for us, right? Because when we're preparing for Christmas, we're preparing for Advent, we're thinking of you know, peace and joy and love and hope and faith and, and light breaking in. But the response, the answer for how we prepare is we repent. So what, what does it mean to repent? Repentance isn't just an apology. Uh, when we talk about repentance in the, the Christian sense of the term, we, we don't mean saying something 
as just like, I'm sorry. We, we mean more than just, I'm sorry. At its core, repentance is the realignment of our heart. It's not just confessing to doing something wrong, it's, it's aligning our hearts to God. And the word repent, it, it means to turn around or, or to, to return. And we can perhaps best think of repentance in, in the, the sense of allegiance. Allegiance. Uh, if we go back to thinking about preparing the king's highway, when the messenger comes to say, hey, the, guys, the king is coming, and this road is, is not ready, we need to prepare the way for the king to come. If the road has been washed out and destroyed, then the, the way of demonstrating allegiance to that king is to repair the roads so that he can come, right? The act of repairing the road both acknowledges that the road has fallen into disrepair, that's fallen into disrepair on our account, and then it seeks to restore that relationship through its rebuilding. Repentance before God is realigning our hearts to him. It means allowing his voice to not only engage our thoughts and our minds, but to come and touch our hearts and to change how we live. And this is an ongoing thing. I think sometimes we can get in our heads that like, with Christian repentance, it's just like a one-and-done kind of deal. But repentance is, is an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing realignment of our hearts and wills before God. It's a continuous returning of our allegiance to Jesus and saying, not my will, but yours be done. And one of the most beautiful things that we believe as Christians is that when we repent, when we align our hearts to God, when we confess our sins to him, we, we know that God forgives us. He forgives us. In 1 John chapter 1, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When we repent, God forgives us. We don't need to worry like, oh, did that get heard? Did that get received? He forgives us. And he takes us under his wing. He receives us and he washes us clean. He forgives. And he doesn't only forgive us. Every single time we confess and repent, he blots out what we've done. Elsewhere in scripture, we read that God willfully forgets our sins. He remembers them no more against us. His forgiveness is total and complete. And you know, maybe you're hearing that and you're thinking, okay, that's very beautiful, Rob. This is the gospel. I've heard this. I love this. What does it have to do with Christmas again? Because I thought Christmas was all about like, you know, the faith, the joy, the love, the peace, the, the, the warmth, the, the light breaking into the darkness. Isn't that what Advent's supposed to be about? Why are we talking about repentance still? And don't get me wrong, like peace, hope, joy, love, those are wonderful things. But Christian peace, Christian hope, Christian joy, and Christian love, we can only experience those things as the fruit of repentance. The reason we celebrate Jesus coming into the world at all it's because we really needed him to. Because the guarantee of our repentance and the assurance of our forgiveness and salvation 
is only made possible through his cross. The way we prepare for our hearts for Jesus to come at Christmas is by repenting. There's no other way. If there were, I wouldn't be preaching this sermon because this has not been a fun sermon to write for me. But the highway was washed out. That highway was washed out, and the way we prepare our hearts and souls for Christmas is by repenting. And the most wonderful news is that God has already been at work preparing that road for us. God is the one who's been working to repair and reconstruct that road that was destroyed by sin. John the Baptist came to prepare the way of the Lord, but Jesus was the one who came to make the way. He is the Lord, and he made the way. He has repaired that highway, and he is coming. He is coming as Lord and as King. And he only comes as Lord and King. And Jesus' coming can be cause for hope and joy. It can be the reason for love and peace. Those wonderful things, love, peace, hope, joy, the promise of light breaking in through the darkness, those wonderful things we hold to and cherish at Christmas are realities for those of us who hold on to Jesus. The realities for us when we accept him as Lord and King. Because Jesus is our hope. He is our joy and he is our light. So will you prepare the way for him this Advent? Will you hear his voice, soften your heart, and align yourself your heart, your mind, your soul with him. Let's pray.